Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome once again to Signals to Danger, the podcast which explores the history of our nation's railways and its darkest days. My name is Dan Fox. I'm the producer of Signals to Danger and also a full-time employee within the sustainability team, funnily enough, of a UK train operating company. I just wanted to take quickly a moment to thank those of you who've been coming out to support the podcast, either with Patreon or donations, or indeed by purchasing merchandise, or sharing and retweeting and things like that. With all of that out of the way, I want to welcome you to part one of another multi-part episode. This time we're going to visit one of the most significant accidents of the railway's recent history, Ladbrook Grove. Over 70 killed and about 200 injured near Lewisham in the worst rail crash since Harrow and Wheelstone. Three people have died after a passenger train derailed near Stonehaven in Aberdeenshire this morning and caught fire. Spads. Signals past a danger. This abbreviation is something you don't want to hear on the railway. They're not incidents you want to be involved in, but it is an abbreviation they're going to hear a lot this episode. Signals which are at danger, well, they're protecting you from risk. They're stopping your train from being somewhere that it really wouldn't want to be, somewhere it would be dangerous to be. And normally that's because there is another train there already, or because one will be shortly. So like I said, spads, there's something that nobody wants to be involved in. But this week I'm going to start by telling you a story, a very railway-themed story, and 
Well, to be frank, it's no fairy tale. So I'd now like to present what I call the tale of the nine spads. We begin on the 2nd of August in 1993. A man by the name of Palmer was driving his train through a recently relayed section of line when he passed a signal at danger. Six feet, that was all he went past it by, not by much, but the signal was still at red. He later told managers that that signal was usually clear. He received a verbal caution, and the paperwork recorded that he had misjudged the situation. Two years later, in February of 95, McKellar was a different driver sat at the controls of a different train. As he drove his train, he was watching the signals around him. Running a few minutes late, he noted that the signals seemed to indicate that he was being diverted onto the relief line, presumably to allow a train to pass him from behind. With yellow aspects ahead of him, he wasn't concerned as his train was routed over from one line to the next. However, he looked up as he traversed the crossover and was shocked to see that the signal, which was now only feet ahead of him, was actually showing a red aspect, and not the yellow that he'd expected. He of course applied the brakes in the emergency setting, but it was 105 yards after the signal where his train actually came to a stand. Contacted the signaller, say he believed the signal had been put back on him, that it had been clear and changed to red. But the signaller dutifully informed him that the signal had been red all along. The post-instant review found misreading of signals was the cause of this operating instance and identified signal sighting confusion as a contributory factor. McKellar had four years and ten months of driving experience and had driven on this route weekly. However, he was taken off driving duties as this was his third SPAD. The hazard ranking officer stated, No recommendations regarding the signal. Next, we move on to the tale of driver Edwards. As he was approaching a red signal on his route in March of 1996, he too was unable to stop in advance of a red danger signal and passed it by a full 146 yards. Edwards alleged that he'd misread the signals much like McKellar had, though in the investigation the employer came to the conclusion that it was unlikely he'd misread the signal that he alleged to because another signal had sat in between the two. In Edwards' case, it was decided that the incident would be classed as a disregard, failure to check signal aspect, with late braking due to attention and driver's lack of concentration recorded as factors. With no previous SPADs, Edwards was classified as risk category A for SPADs and his employer would formulate a plan to highlight any training needs, something that nowadays we'd call a CDP, a competence development plan. With Edwards' tale told, we now move three months forward in time, to June of 1996, to tell the tale of Mr Perkins. Perkins was approaching a junction, which would take his train from one line to another, and on the approach, he'd seen flashing yellow aspects at two preceding signals. These flashing yellows were a warning of a diverging route, understood as such, to remind Perkins to bring his train down to an appropriate speed to traverse the junction. At the junction signal, he had a solid yellow aspect with a junction indicator, but Perkins neglected to immediately recognise that this was a solid yellow, and therefore that it indicated a red aspect at the next signal head. Once he did realise, he put the emergency brake in, but not quickly enough to prevent a spad. 
The SPAD form for this incident indicated that the signal was normally at danger. The form also indicated that the driver was wholly responsible and assigned the following description. Disregard. Failure to react correctly to a caution signal. No allegation was made about the signalling. Driver Perkins had been in the role for three years, eleven months, and had never had a SPAD before, and he drove the route daily. Our fifth SPAD, well that occurred a year later, in April of 1997. Driver Hussein was again following flashing yellows, and while this was the case, in a similar situation he was presented with a steady yellow, which he later didn't recall seeing at all. Having missed this yellow, he expected the next signal to be showing him a proceed aspect of some description. It did not. That next signal was of course at danger. So he put on the emergency brakes and contacted the signalman. He passed it by the length of his three-car unit, 72 yards. It was recommended that Mr Hussein, who'd been driving for around three years, should relearn the tracks in the area and be tested on his knowledge after relearning the route. He was taken off driving for a couple of days, had to go up and down the route with a driver leader, and was giving two videos of the signals to watch, and was asked questions about them later. Moving on to February of 1998, we also move on to the tale of Driver Bunny. He was in control of a, an eight-car high-speed train, and in virtually exactly the same situation as Hussein, he approached a signal, expecting a proceed aspect, following diverging route indications. He told the team investigating that he mistakenly thought he was going down the main line, and if he was going down that route, the next signal would have been quite a distance away. However, he came out from under a bridge, and when he came out from under it, he saw six red signals in a line. He realised he was on course for a different line altogether, not going down the main, and immediately made a full brake application. Believing that he was destined for the main, he'd increased his speed to 70 miles an hour. He thought that the flashing yellows meant he had a route through the junction, but he didn't, and he ended up passing the signal by 432 yards. Luckily, the train stopped short of the point where it would foul another route, but still, an approaching train had their signals put back on them and had to make their own emergency brake application. Driver Bunny was suspended from driving for three or four days. He pleaded guilty at a disciplinary hearing and was required to retrain on the route, but was later removed from driving. He had 34 years of experience. Next, in August of 1998, our next spad enters our tale, with driver Saunders at the controls. He was distracted, thinking how he might apologise to his passengers for the cancellation of this train the previous day. He accelerated past cautionary aspects, and then the second he saw the red, stuck in the emergency brake and overran the signal by 14 yards. He later said that because he was concentrating on making an announcement, he had read the single yellow as a double yellow, and so accelerated because he knew that the next signal to be read was much further along the route. At the time, he'd been a driver for 39 years and 11 months, with one previous SPAD over the last 10 years. This SPAD was classified as disregard, failure to react appropriately to a caution signal. Saunders was taken off duties and put with an instructor driver for a fortnight. Our penultimate SPAD, concerns driver often, 
and took place on the 22nd of August 1998. Again, as some of our previous incidents showed, often was thrown by flashing yellows followed by a steady yellow, an unexpected danger lamp at the end of the run catching him off guard and leading to an overrun of three yards. Often stated that he believed he convinced himself that the preceding signal had stepped up to a double yellow, which would mean that the instant signal would show a single yellow. Driver often had 37 years of experience and had not had a spad in the previous 10 years. The corrective action identified was retraining en route and informal instruction with emphasis on doing the job correctly. Which brings us now, eight down, to the final spad of our tale. But before we get there, I need to tell you all something, and some of you might have figured it out already. These previous eight spads that I've told you about were separated by only five years, but geographically, they were separated even less. Every single one of these took place in the same area. In fact, they all took place at the same signal. A signal that would soon take on an air of infamy across the entire network, one which many people can name without ever driving a train past it. SN-109 It was one of the signals controlling trains departing from London Paddington Station, and by this point it was classed as a multi-spad signal, with such a wealth of instance already tied to it. Following this most recent incident, Miss Alison Foster, Operations and Safety Director for First Great Western, wrote to a Mr Les Wilkinson, who was the production manager for Railtrack's Great Western Zone. She had a simple but sincere question to ask him. I should be grateful if you would advise me, as a matter of urgency, what action you intend to mitigate against this high-risk signal. But unfortunately, this is not the tale of the eight spads. This is the tale of the nine. And, while each of these previous occurrences narrowly avoided serious consequences, the same cannot be said of the ninth. To close out our story, we now need to move forwards in time once more, to the morning of the 5th of October, 1999. To begin to tell the story of Spad number 9, we'll introduce two characters, Brian Cooper and Michael Hodder. Both men shared several things in common. Both married, both had children, and tragically, neither man would survive the day. Both Cooper and Hodder started their days on the 5th of October by arriving at work, signing on to their depots, reading their briefs, and climbing into the cabs of passenger trains. 
52-year-old Brian was to take the earlier of the two, the 603 First Great Western service from Cheltenham Spa into the city. A bright and early service for the early birds, keen to catch the worm on a Tuesday morning, arriving into the city a little after 8am. For those with a commute across the city on the underground or a walk to the office, this was a service perfectly timed to fit in with their day. 1-Alpha-09 was the headcode, and the name the railway would know his train by on signalling panels, on diagrams and rosters, and eventually in accident reports, logs, and an inquiry. We'll also refer to it by three letters we know all too well on this podcast, HST. As we've seen in many reports and following on many episodes, the Intercity 125 high-speed train features here as well. In fact, I've spoken about it so frequently over the last year or so, I won't even write my own spiel to describe the train to you. I'll tell you how it's described within a document we'll start to become more familiar with in the second part of this multi-part episode, the Cullen Report. The HST was designed to be capable of carrying about 400 passengers at speeds of up to 125 miles an hour. It consisted of eight coaches with a diesel power car, also referred to as a Class 43 locomotive, at each end. The trains were constructed in the workshops of British Rail Engineering Limited, which is what BREL stands for, an acronym you might have seen stamped into the footsteps of all the trains up and down the country. A total of 91 train sets were put in service between 1976 and 1982, 27 of which were for the mainline services of the Western region of British Rail, and in turn inherited by First Great Western following the privatisation of the nation's railways in 1994. So, HSTs are big trains. They're not the little local trains ambling from stop to stop, no. They are the big, fast, intercity-serving beasts which had been introducing high-speed travel between towns and cities for decades by this point. So much that one of the monikers they'd earned over this time was the Journey Shrinker. Indeed, the capacity offered by these trains was needed on the routes that they were used on, especially those rails plied by First Great Western. With real estate in the capital being the price that it is, and the allure of a suburban life with family being such a draw, many, many people made the decision to commute into the city on a daily basis. Whether these choices are changing somewhat in a post-Covid world remains to be seen, mind, but certainly back in 1999 there was no Teams, no Zoom, and working from home, well, that was a relatively unheard of concept. With all this in mind, it's no surprise that after the train's penultimate halt at Reading, Brian, at the leading end of his train, found himself the 422nd person on board the train, with him holding the responsibility of looking after all of those behind him, be them his colleagues, or one of the many passengers on board. And those passengers were nicely spread out amongst the coaches, with Coach H immediately behind him playing host to 36, Coach G 42, and F, which was also the buffet car, holding 30 passengers and two catering staff. These first three coaches comprised first class on the train, with the shortest walk and arrival into London, as is the general convention on long-distance routes, in fact. That's something you're still going to see on most long-distance operators, so LNR, etc., Avanti. First class is at the town end, so the London end, and standard, well, we all sit down at the country end. From Kochi, we move into standard class. 
and as you might expect, the density of bodies increased, with E accommodating 85 of the train's passengers, D-74, C-64 and B-40. The final vehicle of the train, Coach A, was also the location of the conductor's apartment. Apartment? Compartment. So on board this particular coach, you could find 47 passengers and the senior conductor of the service. A very busy train, but nothing unusual for an early morning capital-bound express. With Redding disappearing into the distance behind him, Cooper opened up the throttle and continued his journey towards the block ends at London's Paddington Station, around 35 miles further down the line. At Paddington, Michael Hodder sat in the cab of another train, awaiting its departure. His charge was somewhat smaller, maybe less impressive, three carriages as opposed to the ten vehicles of Cooper's. The Class 165 diesel multiple unit, which would be travelling under the headcode of 1kilo20 as it made its way to Bedwin in Wiltshire, was operated by Thames Trains. The 165s, the 165s were also built by BREL, and the fleet was also known as Networker Turbos, and so the fleet operated by Thames Trains were, well, inevitably given the moniker of Thames Turbos. In any case, the three-car unit was equipped with around 280 seats, capable of a top speed of 90 miles an hour, while each of the power cars top and tailing the HST brought two and a quarter thousand horsepower to the table, for the Thames turbo motive power came from diesel engines slung underneath each of the three carriages, each of them fielding around 350 horsepower. The power rating of these trains, well, they were substantially lower than that of the HST, but the design speed and weight being lugged around were both proportionally lower as well. Being multiple units, fuel for the diesel engines were also carried in tanks that were slung underneath the passenger saloon, along with other body equipment essential for the running of the train, the provision of services to passengers such as heating, cooling, the compression of air to operate systems on board. And on the morning of the 5th, 165115, sat in Platform 9 of Paddington Station, awaiting its departure time of 6 minutes past 8. Even though this was a down train headed away from the capital at such an early time, as the clock ticked towards departure, 147 others joined Michael Hodder on board the turbo, 25 of them making the walk down the platform to the departure end, joining Hodder in the leading vehicle of the train. 60 others had chosen to travel in the middle carriage and the last 62 were taking seats in the trailing final carriage of the train. And at 6 minutes past 8 in the morning, the doors of the train were closed, the train was dispatched and Hodder took power, easing his charge out of the platform and westbound. Though the train was supposed to take these 147 passengers many miles to several different stations, the journey would come to a jarring halt three minutes and less than three kilometres later, at Ladbrook Grove.
The approach to major stations can be fairly chaotic, and to some degree, well, they need to be. Looking at a normal station, in inverted commas, if there is such a thing, the layouts and requirements can be quite simple in comparison. An up and a down line, one in each direction with a platform assigned to each. Nice and simple to arrange. Trains arrive into the platform on one track and then leave on the same track at the other end of the platform. Dead easy. Take this principle and apply it to a small terminus station, then the issue isn't that complicated. A crossover outside the station allows trains to enter or leave either of the two platforms. But, when we scale this up, things can get pretty complicated. Quite often the approach to larger stations sees, well, several up and down lines. It could be an up and down main, an up and down relief, or lines named for directions or destinations, fast or slow lines, the the up Manchester, the, the down Stoke, the relief, etc, etc. But it's not only the consideration of the extra lines entering and leaving the station which complicate the situation. It's the sheer number of platforms that larger stations have. To help picture this complexity and the impact that it can have, we're going to take Paddington as an example, which is probably the best idea considering that it's the station we're talking about today. Paddington is a terminus station. Trains only enter and leave from the west on either the up or down main or the up or down relief line. These four lines eventually feed in and out of 14 separate platforms. And it's incredibly helpful to have as much access to and from these platforms as possible. It allows the station to be well operated as flexibly and efficiently as possible. This was achieved at Paddington through the use of a block of six bi-directional running lines, which took trains to and from the up and down main and relief and helped to split them out into the 14 platform lines. Getting from the six lines, helpfully numbered one to six, to the platforms required a, well, a considerable amount of metalwork. In fact, in the first mile of the route from the block ends of the platforms, around 25 separate crossovers and a number of other sets of points bounced trains around from one track to the other. And this meant that whatever line trains arrived on, they could be funneled to the desired platform and dispatched out onto either of the main or relief lines when they left the station. All of these sets of points and sections of line clearly needed signalling and therefore there were plenty of them in the area. In fact, that same distance saw around 40 different signal heads in the outbound direction alone, starting with the platform starters and with the majority of them mounted on a series of gantries that spanned the six bi-directional running lines. An incredibly complicated area, but one that saw many trains every hour of every day, predominantly without incident. But not this time. Not on this day. So it's time for us now to explore the brief journey taken by 1Kilo20. The journey of Michael Hodder and his train was to be controlled by a series of signals and points that would take it from Platform 9 and out down to the down relief line and out of the city. The first of these signals was SN17, his platform starting signal which cleared to a green aspect, with the attached theatre indicator, a display capable of showing line information, showing the number 4. This signal and this theatre indication told him that on his departure from the platforms, his train would be routed onto line 4, 
the fourth of the six bidirectional lines from north from south to north. With the route set, the signal clear, at 8.06, Hodder added in the throttle and took the train out. As it left the platform, the train crossed over two sets of trailing points to the left, bringing it on to line four. The automated route setting system handled many of the movements in and out of Paddington at the time, and indeed still will. Automated route setting, or ARS, is a type of signalling system which automatically allocates a route and sets points and signals for trains. These systems use train information, the timetable, digital knowledge of other movements in the area to set these routes and plan them through. And it does this to take a great deal of the burden away from manually signalling everyday movements, leaving signallers to focus on the more out-of-course situations and manoeuvres. A minute after the departure time, Michael Hodder was comfortably travelling along the route which ARS had selected for him passing through the next signal on his route, SN43. This one was also at green, again with a theatre indication of 4, the line that he was travelling along. His speed, 34 miles an hour, was gradually increasing, and over the next 20 or so seconds, the train came up to 44 miles an hour. Everything at this point was in line with a normal departure from Paddington, there was nothing untoward, and the passengers on the train would feel exactly the same as they did every single day during this journey. And at 8 or 7 and 20 seconds, the turbo approached another signal, SN63. SN63 was showing a double yellow aspect. This was an advance warning that the next signal would be a single yellow, and the one after it read. This was the heads up Hodder was provided that he would need to be bringing his train to a stand soon. The AWS horn sounded and was cancelled. Hodder acknowledged the warning and continued. All the other signals at the gantry were at red. SN63 was fitted with a type of junction indicator that we've colloquially referred to as a feather. But at the time, the junction indicator wasn't lit, which told Hodder that the turbo would be continuing to move along line 4 as it departed, towards the next signal which Hodder should expect to see at a single yellow. At the same time as this outbound journey was taking place, a corresponding inbound one was also happening. Brian Cooper and his fully loaded high-speed train were now on the final stages of their run into the city, passengers folding their newspapers, gathering their belongings, polishing off coffees and starting to shuffle down the train towards the front to get that ever-shorter walker to the tube. The office and whatever else the day had in store for them. Cooper had been following another train into the city, Not unusual with so many trains coming in and out of Paddington at rush hour and so had seen some restrictive aspects but these were now clearing and the train was getting back up towards the line speed of 100 miles an hour hovering at around 80 as they came closer and closer to their destination. The two trains continued their respective journeys but the turbo started to act concerningly not that anyone outside of the cab would have realised at the time. Around 20 seconds after Hodder and his train passed through SN63 at a double yellow, they passed over the AWS ramp for SN87. This signal showed a single yellow, and a feather indicating a move to line 3 at the next junction. Travelling at around 40 miles an hour, Hodder acknowledged the warning but made no alteration to his speed, no application of his brakes. The next signal, the one that he should have expected to be at red, 
was just over 700 metres further along the track, a distance that he would travel in around 40 seconds at this speed. 300 metres later, the train passed over the crossover to line 3, coasting. The train had actually slowed to around 37 miles an hour. This wasn't much of a change, but less nonetheless. 200 metres further on, as Hodder's train entered line 3, lay another signal, SN109. The signal that we heard so much about in the intro to this week's episode. Not once, not twice, but eight times over the last five years, this signal had been passed at danger. And at 8.08 and 15 seconds on the morning of the 5th of October, 150 metres ahead of Michael Hodder's train, it was at danger once again. Was Hodder slowing to a stand at the signal? No, he was not. His train was speeding up, with power being applied again after the coasting on the approach to the crossover, and after another few seconds, SN109 was spadded for the ninth time, bringing our total to nine. Hodder clearly didn't realise that for whatever reason, he'd passed the signal at danger, and the speed of his train continued to increase. SN109 was the final signal before a train would be directed onto either the down relief or the down main. The intention had been to hold Hodder's train at the signal before allowing him to continue onto the down lines, but clearly this hadn't gone to plan. And in each of the earlier eight spads, there was one key part of the narrative which just seems to be absent here. In each and every case, the drivers of the respective trains realised at the last minute that the signals were at danger and reacted as such, resulting in overruns that ranged between 3 and 400 metres in length, and while this second figure might seem like a disastrous one in terms of the safety of the railway, they have the same effect. The point at which a train passing SN109 would block the route of another train is known as the fouling point. This was 563 metres beyond the signal. Hodder and his train had passed the signal and at 50 miles an hour, we're now rapidly approaching this fouling point. And in this circumstance, on this day, that danger was all too real, because just to the west, Brian Cooper and his 422 passengers were travelling at around 85 miles an hour, also rapidly approaching that very same fouling point. Signallers at the IECC had been watching the passage of trains through the area and they tried to avert disaster and reacted to the turbo's behaviour by setting the signal in front of the HST to danger to warn Cooper but the effort was all but in vain. This took place a matter of seconds before Cooper's train passed the signal SN120 but the problem with this was that not only the time it would take to react but the fact that the HST was travelling at this point at just over 80 miles an hour, and the signal was less than 100 metres in advance of the fouling point. With the two trains closing at a combined speed in the area of 130 miles an hour, the stage was set, and the end result all but locked in. The first eight spads had seen little more damage done than that that was dealt to the careers of the staff who'd been driving the trains. The ninth one? Well, this one would be catastrophic.
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thirty-three seconds had elapsed between the time at which the Thames Turbo passed SM109 at danger and the point where it passed through the points onto the up-main line, where the HSD met it. The combined speed of the two trains meant that uh, an astronomical amount of energy would be involved in the collision, and the results would be, understandably, terrible. At the point where the two trains came into collision, the turbo was almost finished traversing the points onto the up-main line when it met the front of the HST. The two were slightly offset by only 10 to 40 centimetres, but it was, for all intents and purposes, a head-on collision between the trains at 130 miles an hour. The coupler of the turbo was the first point of collision against the leading end of the HST, but this would have been deflected quickly aside by the impact, allowing the power power car's buffers to contact the underframe and lower superstructure of the front car of the turbo. As the leading coupler on the front car deflected, the drag box, the heavy piece of metal that the coupler was mounted to, was likely to have been forced back and upwards, tearing it away from the leading bolster of the frame and all but opening up the vehicle. In fact, before I tell you how the rest of the accident unfolded, it's important to understand a few things about the dynamics at play here. The power car of the high-speed train weighed 70 tonnes and had another 300 or so tonnes of train behind it, and this mass was travelling at around 80 miles an hour. This is a heck of a lot of potential energy in the turbo that it collided with, while the whole train was only about 110 tonnes and had been travelling about 30 miles an hour slower. While both trains were going to feel the impact here, it's very likely that one was going to feel it so much more. The buffers of the power car may have been torn off as they impacted into the front car of the turbo and that allowed the headstock of the power car to come into firm contact at the leading end of the turbo's vehicle. As the power car impacted the cab end of the front car of the turbo, the cab and the leading section of floor of that cab completely destroyed. The cab end and left hand body side of the turbo were annihilated as the HST penetrated the vehicle. The right-hand body side of the front car started to fail along the weld to the sole bar at the bottom and the carriage essentially began to peel open with its roof remaining one of the only really recognisable components and the fuel tank from the front car of the turbo sustained a heavy impact on its leading end and was just destroyed. It wasn't only the turbo of course that was feeling the effects of this force, the leading end of the power car suffered considerably also. In fact, the cab of the power car 
which was constructed of glass-reinforced plastic, shattered, and the pieces were scattered over the southern area of the accident site. While the impact and sudden deceleration was happening at the front of the leading vehicle at the turbo, the trailing end struck the leading end of its middle car. The trailing end failed and was pushed inside the middle car, and as a result of this, the leading end of the male car failed along the right-hand welds that were joining the body sides and roof, and the roof itself was pushed upwards. The left-hand side failed along the welds, the sole bar and the floor was pushed down. At the same time as the first few vehicles of the turbo were colliding and rapidly decelerating, the rest of the HST behind the power car started to collide with each other as well. The leading end of coach H, which was the first passenger coach of the HST, impacted on the trailing end of the power car. The trailing end of the power car was actually pushed inside the guard's compartment at the front of the coach, and then the coach itself started to override the power car, lifting up as it did so, and its underframe began to bend back on itself as the leading bogey fell away. The floor and left-hand body side of the front car of the turbo were seriously damaged when the HST sliced through the leading sections of the car. In fact, the body with the bogies and the leading fuel tank from under the power car itself separated from the underframe, and a section of floor from the turbo passed through and became embedded in one of the fuel tanks of the power car. After the accident, the power car veered off to the right towards the southern side of the track. In fact, a passenger in one of the following coaches described it as looking like an aeroplane, taking off and heading towards the right. Coach H started to rotate with it as it followed the power car, being struck from the rear by the trailing coaches. So, the trailing fuel tank from the power car detached as part of this accident, part of this collision, and the trailing bogey and underframe equipment on Coach H also fell free. Debris from the superstructure of the leading end of the front car of the turbo was scattered over the site. The impact of the two trains had not only stopped the turbo essentially in its tracks as it started to disintegrate, but it actually pushed the rear two vehicles back by about 12 metres. That transition from heading forwards at 50 miles an hour to suddenly being pushed backwards, the energy involved in this is just a terrifying thing to consider. As the HST passed the turbo, its coaches scraped along the left-hand side of its middle car and struck the left-hand side of the rear car. There are accounts of passengers who recall seeing other passengers in the other train as these vehicles passed by each other. But as the middle car of the turbo was pushed backwards off the track, the right-hand side of its fuel tank was also ruptured. Coach H of the HST jackknifed, sliding over and impacting with a gantry girder on the south side of the track, eventually coming to a rest near the power car, and the two coaches following it, F and G, toppled onto their right-hand sides, their bogies sheared off, embedding in track or impacting other equipment. The underframe equipment on these coaches was just destroyed. Some items of debris from the front car of the turbo were dragged along by the coaches of the HST and distributed along the length of the scene of the accident. Others were thrown into the air in the initial impact, coming to rest in numerous locations around the site. As the two trains, or rather the HST and what was left of the turbo, came to a sudden, violent halt. All of which would have been a brutal and unforgiving accident, if it wasn't for what came next. Fire. 
it was already a terrible, terrible accident. But fireballs developed across the site, and two vehicles in particular, Coach H of the HST and the middle coach of the Turbo, were quickly involved in an inferno which sent plumes of black smoke into the air. One passenger from Coach H described what she saw as the crash took place. I turned my head to the right, and I saw a fireball. At this point, I was still bracing myself in my seat. I tried to curl up when I saw the fireball coming. I twisted to my right and pulled my right leg up, trying to get into the fetal position and tried to pull the left leg up. I was unsuccessful in pulling my left leg up because it was trapped under the table which had fallen onto it. I clamped my hands over my face and pushed my right side of my head into the back of the seat. I don't recall screaming, but I might have done because I managed to burn the inside of my mouth and throat. I remember the fire hitting me. It got incredibly hot, and I could hear my hair crackling. There was also a noise like gas igniting. It then went quiet. The heat had died down, so I took my hands away from my face. My right leg that I tried to pull up was actually stuck on the armrest and was still on fire. I reached down with my right hand and patted my legs, and put the flames out. Just pause a second after that, a truly terrifying account of what took place in just one carriage of the train. In addition to the vehicles that were on fire, there were widespread and numerous trackside fires around the scene, mainly to the south of the crash site. What had been the last moments of a perfectly normal commute into the capital for 422 people and a normal journey out for another 147 was now like the scene from a war zone, more representative of the aftermath of a bomb than a railway journey. And for those in either of the trains, people found themselves in this terrible alien landscape, some trying to understand what had taken place, some awaiting rescue, and others trying frantically to save their own lives. The first calls to the fire brigade were made almost instantaneously. For those around the railway at Ladbroke Grove, there was no ambiguity. Something terrible had taken place, and assistance was certainly required. The first fire engines arrived at the scene very shortly before 8.15 in the morning. They came from North Kensington Fire Station, about half a mile away, and as he arrived, the station officer was able to observe a large mushroom cloud of smoke rising nearly 200 metres into the air. Understandably, further appliances were called for. At first, there was a bit of delay, opening an electronically controlled security gate to a depot that was next to the track. However, while this didn't prevent five officers from scaling the gate with a ladder, 
After entering the grounds of the depot, firemen climbed over the trackside perimeter fence using extension ladders, as well as gaining access through the hole which the HST had made in the fence. Arrangements were made to cut another hole in the fence, by means of hydraulic equipment, to allow access by medical personnel and for the removal of live casualties. Of course, the fire brigade weren't the only emergency service arriving, and London's Metropolitan Police arrived on the scene no later than about 8.15, with the first officers of the British Transport Police minutes behind them. To facilitate access to the crash site, a detective inspector of the Met commandeered a builder's lorry and, with the driver's assistance, put ladders down the side of the bank to gain access. The first of the ambulances arrived on scene at 19 minutes past eight, as well as an accident and emergency consultant of the Royal London Hospital who became the medical instant officer. At least 11 doctors and registrars attended the scene, as well as a mobile medical team from University College Hospital. Four local hospitals, St Mary's, Chelsea and Westminster, Charing Cross and the Central Middlesex were told to activate their major incident plans. Nearby Balby Road School was opened for the reception of passengers who were in need of medical attention and for the interviewing of witnesses and at 8.28 in the morning the incident was declared a major disaster, something that was probably clear enough to anyone and lucky enough to be looking over the scene. Between 8.35 and 8.50, the medical services assessed the size of the incident and the number of casualties. Their initial figures suggested 200 patients, with approximately 20 believed to be trapped. The work was cut out for those who were on the scene. While a great deal of work was being done on site, the Met also made arrangements with the two train companies involved for the setting up of family reception centres within the police force areas covering the train's routes. So centres were set up at Gloucester, Swindon and Reading, Reading, staffed jointly by representatives of the train operating companies, the BTP and the local police forces. While the Blue Light heroes did great work to comfort, release and rescue those trapped in the wreckage, as well as battling dangerous conditions to fight the intense fires that had broken out, the regular passengers on board also deserve great commendation for the part they played following the accident. The report into the incident, which we'll... Um, will hear so much more about in the following episodes, paid tribute to them, saying, Many of those travelling on the trains showed acts of great courage and humanity in the aftermath of the crash. Under appalling conditions, and in many cases with injuries of their own, they helped their fellow travellers to safety, and looked after them until the emergency services were able to take over. Their outstanding efforts, and those of the many members of the public who responded so readily, and effectively to the crisis, were clear from the evidence presented to the inquiry. The work of the fire brigade, the police and the ambulance service also deserves the highest praise. They brought great comfort to those who were distressed and confused, many of whom were in great pain and had suffered very serious injuries. However, despite the best efforts of all on the scene, rescue of survivors would end at some point. Looking at the trains, it was clear that there would be, at some point, the grim task of recovery. And by 1300 on the 5th of October, the last three remaining trapped casualties had been released, leaving only bodies in the wreckage. Dr Neil of the Royal London's helicopter ambulance team was, I imagine, somewhat reluctantly appointed mortuary officer on the day of the crash. 
His was the grim responsibility for pronouncing that life was extinct and for producing tags for the bodies which were left outside by the carriages. The location of each body was noted by him before he then signed the tags and left them for the police to take further action. Recovery of the bodies started at 1745 on the 5th of October under the direction of the coroner and took place over the next nine days. So, with all of this grim work undertaken, what was the toll of the 9th Spad at SN 109? When all was tallied up at the end of the work on site, everyone learned the tragic news that 31 people had died as a result of the crash, 24 of whom had been on the Thames Trains Turbo and 7 on First Great Western's HST. Coach H, which had taken the worst of the impact from the HST's perspective and become an inferno, had, as I said earlier, contained 36 passengers. Six of these had been killed. The bodies of three of them were found in the rear part of the leading power car, had been apparently thrown forward into it during the accident. The bodies of two other passengers were found to the south of Coach D and in the wreckage outside the coach of French H. The remaining passenger, who had died as the result of inhaling fire fumes and had also been found to have sustained significant head injuries, was found in the rear of the coach. In the front coach of the Turbo, there had been 25 passengers and 19 of them had been killed. Three were found in the wreckage at the front of the middle car, seven between the front and middle cars, and one was found outside the rear of the middle car, with another one found between the middle car and coach C of the HST. Two more had been found to the south of coach E, two underneath the front bogies of coach E, two to the south of coach D, and two to the south of coach C. One of these people died from the effects of burns some week after the accident, and one had lost their life as a result of the burn injuries they'd sustained. The rest of them had lost their lives as a result of the injuries which they'd sustained in the impact. A further three passengers on the turbo had tragically lost their lives as a result of the impacts, and a final deceased passenger was found trapped underneath the wreckage of the rearmost vehicle of the Thames Turbo. While the loss of the 29 passengers was certainly tragic, especially within the circumstances of the day, they were not the only people on board the trains to die. Brian Cooper, the driver of the HST, had been ejected from the cab of his power car during the collision and had been found to the south of it. He'd been killed instantly as the crash took place. Michael Hodder had been found with the other bodies from the leading vehicle of his train and likely also died instantly as well. 31 deaths on one of the industry's darkest days. 29 passengers who wouldn't even make it into the office that morning, let alone home that evening. And two others who were just at work doing their jobs when life was brought to a brutal and swift conclusion. This was, in every way, one of the big ones. 
It's an accident I've referred to in the past as being part of the dark ages of modern rail in my own way of looking at it. And I'm sure you can see why, but as ever, it's not enough to know why, well, what's happened. We absolutely need to understand the why as well. In fact, even while the rescue and recovery work was taking place, investigative work had started. At about 1300 on the 5th of October, the BTP started a fingertip search of the crash site. With the assistance of Railtrack, First Great Western, Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate and Thames Trains, it was rightly described as having been performed in arduous, distressing and sometimes dangerous conditions. This search lasted for nine days and the site was handed back to Railtrack at 17.25 on the 13th of October. So what did the investigation unturn? What was the reason for the collision at Ladbrook Grove, and why had Hodder not stopped at SN109? And many, many other questions, which, for that, you are going to need to tune in to our next episode, as we reveal the details of the investigation, and the other factors unturned as the professionals picked through what was left after the accident. This is the reason why I've chosen to tell this story as a three-part tale. I've done it once before when we discussed Carmont. Both are incredibly significant. There is a lot of story to tell. Not just the accident itself, although I feel like an hour was probably the right amount of time to do this one justice. But when we get into the investigation, there is a lot of information in there. But, specifically with regards to Ladbrook Grove... I think this is going to be a three-parter. Next week's episode will look at the investigation, the causes of the accident and what was found. But the third part, well, we're going to look into the legacy of the accident. What happens after Ladbrook Grove? And what impact did the Cullen Report have on the industry as a whole? I think it's really worth the discussion and I hope you'll come back for the second two parts. Labrook Grove is probably one of the worst accidents that we'll ever discuss on the podcast. While Quinton's Hill, Harrow and Wheelston, Lewisham, they're all more substantial in their scale, this took place on what is arguably the modern railway, using stock that is still out there on the railway today, infrastructure that still exists. This is the modern railway at a time when we should just be better than this. So tune in next time when we find out a bit more about the disaster which left the 5th of October as a black mark in the calendar of the industry, as well as leaving a tragically empty space in 31 families. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Signals to Danger. Come and hang out with me on social media, find us at, at Signals to Danger on Twitter or Signals to Danger on Facebook. Or drop me an email at daniel.fox at dfrailmedia.com. Don't forget the merchandise we've got on sale, the links on our social posts, and a big thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, check out the link on the support page of our website, signalstodanger.com. And with all of that said, Until the next episode, travel safe.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.